0: You're listening to Influx Collective, the podcast walking amongst the rubble, undocu-queer pride.
1: I'm learning to let my soul uh, fall apart. I take pride in being a survivor. I hate the American dream. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Bianca Gutierrez. I'm your host of Influx Collective, The Walking Amongst the Rubble series. I'm a storyteller, writer, and cultural strategist.
0: We started as a queer poetry reading series, uh, but basically our mission is to connect LA-based poets, promote queer events, and provide a space and a platform for queer creators and queer content. And Influx is a place for audience members to hear stories that reflect their own
1: and for performers to find an audience that understands. Support our programming at Patreon. Uh, we are at patreon.com slash Collective without an E. Hi, everyone. Today, we're interviewing Jesus Valles, they, them. They're a queer Mexican immigrant educator, storyteller, performer from Ciudad de Juarez, El Paso. Jesus is a 2021 Canto Mundo Fellowship recipient at the Palm Beach Poetry Festival, a 2019 Lambda Literary Fellow. They're a trailblazer. Zeus, how are you today? It's going all
2: right. Yeah, we got into L.A. on Friday. Had a have got a show at the L.A. Theatre Center in October, November. So we had a production nice. meeting yesterday and like a walk through the space and have been eating food as, as often as I can because I live in Providence <laughs> now. And so the like cuisine the cuisines are, are, are yeah very different on the east coast yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah is there like any places where you feel comfortable going to eat like for comfort food in,
2: in providence Island? no yeah like my bed to, like drive like, to new jersey just, or like, something. <laughs> just like a bunch of bread that i just like <laughs> that's like that's it oh my gosh yeah that's
1: yeah. crazy I'm sorry, but oh, I'm no, happy that you're getting all your food needs met here. Thanks. Where have you gone to eat at here? So far, and
2: then honestly, the other night there was just like a food truck outside of like precinct that I was like, yes, this is correct. I don't even know the yes. name. It was just very good. So
1: nice nice yeah you can't go wrong with mexican food or any type of like Mm -hmm. food in la everything's so good yesterday we had some peruvian mexican fusion tacos and they were bomb they were bomb and yeah if you ever go to what's it called i feel
0: like it had llama in the name i
1: Raciously enough, I don't know if that's a word, (laughs) it had llama in it because I'm Peruvian and everyone's like, oh, llamas. I'm like, yeah, that's how we're uh, that's her little nickname. Oh, yeah. Little llama taco or something. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, more importantly, other than weird fusion food, there is a lot of stuff that I want to ask you about your poet. So poetically how have been things going poetically artistically creatively all those things
2: yeah that's a great question I've had this conversation with a few people now and I think it's the question of coming back I feel Mm -hmm. like it keeps coming up like what does it mean to come back what does it mean to actually not be able to locate a kind of endpoint for this pandemic and to sort of have this really strange sense that that American complacency with death and and the aiding of this like of, of a mass disabling event and a mass death event is the sort of like standard has been really strange. So, yeah, I would say it's been difficult to think about creating or making anything that that feels important or good or necessary it's been difficult to think about making anything that feels like it's able to hold or feed any anything any part of myself because things look so bleak so i think i've felt like i've been in a kind of <sighs> I would say where my poetry practice is concerned, I feel like I've been at this really strange moment of pause. I deeply want poetry and and the poems that I write to be able to do something. And I obviously Mm -hmm. can't articulate what it is that I want them to do. And I, you know, I don't, I also don't have any sort of huge investment in a thinking that poetry does something in a material sense. But I wanted to... And I feel like that sometimes over the course of maybe like the last year and a half has actually felt like a kind of impetus for freezing up when I'm in front of a Word document. So so poetically, I think I've been in a kind of pausing point. And the one thing that's helped is I'm currently a graduate student. And so I've now enrolled in two separate sort of workshop style classes. And it's been helpful to sort of have uh, a timeline for when like a poem is due because it's then made it, which is probably not the best like artistic sort of, it's the least romantic version of writing a poem, which is, well, I have a deadline and I have to do something. So here it is. Mm -hmm. But I have found that helpful, right? In that it's made writing feel a little bit more like a practice and like something that has the capacity to to feel more like a muscle or like something that I am sort of in the process of working out of strengthening of trying to preserve so that it doesn't atrophy as weird as that sounds yeah so I think that's sort of where I've been with things um where I think strangely enough my playwriting practice has actually become a little bit more fluid and I find I'm finding myself writing for the stage a little bit more quickly or a little bit faster and I do wonder how much of that is the is that the poem sometimes feels like a really deeply lonely space in that it is it I find anyway it is sometimes more difficult to invoke other people inside of the poem because of the kind of overwhelming presence of the speaker, of the self inside the poem, where with plays, I think there's this really, really lovely room for other characters, other ways of speaking other people in one's lives, other times to really bleed through and in a way that for me, I think right now feels a little bit more capacious and a little bit more possible.
1: Yeah, I really understand what you mean creatively to feel in this space of just like survival and not necessarily know how to address that on a page or even like how to just be yourself on a page again because of kind of weird like I've period that we're in because we're all like alive but it's like I don't know some like in between space of just watching multiple COVID deaths happen and whatnot so yeah I feel you with that I you know send you all of the the writing sparks that I can. I'm currently going through the same. And yeah, I'm curious how does it feel to have poetry put aside and then your play practice kind of blooming a little bit?
2: Yeah, I it's interesting. I actually was having a conversation with the my director and collaborator for the solo show that I've been working with and touring for the last few years. We were having a conversation yesterday with with the director of a company here, and the director, made an argument for plays as not necessarily being literary forms, at least in his particular sort of like aesthetic, not being literary forms, but being the, the text to an event, right? Like the blueprint for a live happening. And I'm also currently in a program where I'm studying with somebody who deeply believes in text and in in what can happen in the writing of a thing. This is Julia Jarko, who's head of playwriting over at Brown. And I think I've been thinking a lot about, I think I've been thinking a lot about form and and genre and and what poetic registers are actually enabled by the possibility of liveness inside of the play. There's a play that I'm currently sort of working on slash workshop about bathhouses and their specific. Connection to and what they tell us about public sex and and public sex spaces in the United States. And sometimes when I sit down to read that piece and think about it and work on it with actors, I think a lot about, yeah, what it might mean for a poetry manuscript to actually just look like a play. So so that the poetry practice is still sort of something that 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 can be smuggled into the playwriting practice that that can still happen inside Mm -hmm. of a play without a kind of clear divorce or delineation between the two forms. Because I also, I I don't know, I also think there's this it's interesting that this, that your question sort of gets prompted by the idea that we are in this really strange moment where we are all keenly like aware that we are alive, yes. That our body is sort of like trudging through through the possibility of our breath every day while we so clearly sit with, beside, on top of death that is, yes, enabled, obviously, by, you know, by disease and by... by virus, but also specifically by like state negligence, right? Mm. And a kind of deliberate state negligence. And so I think it's really, I don't know, it's been interesting to sort of, it's wow. been interesting to, to write at a time where death feels like such a sort of strange co-pilot for living, that you constantly understand yourself actually in relation to death, to the possibility of contagion, of disease, while you do this thing that in some ways seems to insist on its liveness, right? That, mm. that the poem... And the play both actually seem to insist on a kind of aliveness, that that the poem can be a kind of scripting for breath, that so can the play obviously insists on its eventual happening by inhabiting a body, by living in breath, and also what a wild thing to try to do at a time when breath actually seems so impossible. I just keep thinking about (laughs) breath in the practice of theater and in the practice of the poem as as such interesting sort of exercises in defiance when we are dealing with a disease that so specifically affects the the respiratory system. And yeah, I think I'm finding myself really sort of, in some ways... Even as I feel paused in my poetry practice, I also am finding myself in some ways fairly unrestricted in what it is that I want to write about and how it is that I want to write it. Because I'm, well, we're at a crisis point, so fuck it. Let me actually just give myself permission (laughs) to do whatever it is that I want. Because the possibility of a production or publishing at this point feels in some ways fairly irrelevant in in the face of everything else. I'm like, the world is literally on fire. If this play isn't great and nobody ever wants to produce it, I'm going to be okay. Hopefully I'll be alive tomorrow, seems to feel like the more important statement that I have to sort of assure myself of before I start writing anything. So I think that's where that particular relationship has been and where it's going. And I've been thinking a lot about presses, Three Hole Press, for example, or plays in verse. I've been thinking a lot about publishing outlets that really think a lot about the hybrid text and how we might fuck with form in a way that feels good and that allows text to do as many things as it wants or needs or can do without the limitation of production, of publishing, of genre, of review, of being studied. So I don't know. That's like a giant word salad that just lands at I'm kind of just doing whatever it is that I want at the moment because uh, everything is on fire.
1: Yeah, I feel that. I really found the part where you were saying, I mean, there were so many great things about what you were saying. There's such a weird moron when living And then at the same time creating. But also you're saying that this is a really good space to pay attention to breath, both on the page and both in person, you know, through different kinds of forms. Can you please talk about that more?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to do all kinds of roundabout ways to sort of talk about (laughs) this, but, you know, we'll see what happens. I think. There was this really interesting moment that happened, and by interesting, I mean horrifying, and that's that maybe is something to unpack, but there was a moment where online there was this discussion being taken up about, about fires in the Amazon as a kind of attack on the lungs of the world, at the same time that we were having conversations about what COVID symptoms might look like, and this is early on enough in the pandemic that I think we didn't quite know enough about, about COVID to really talk about it in ways that felt medically attentive to what is actually happening. You know, the, the fact that we had such heavy campaigns for like washing your hands as a way to combat a what we would eventually, you know, realize was an airborne disease I thought was really wild. And I so, so I just kept thinking about that, that, that kind of Interesting, and again, and by interesting, I mean horrifying. The specific rhyming of ecological crisis mimicking a crisis in the human body, and that both of these are questions of breath, right? That like, that we are at a point where ecological disaster is having to be as bold as possible about the relevance of its metaphor that we see it reflected in our own body. And I kept thinking about all of the spaces that that the pandemic then asked us to lose, right? Which, Which are the places that I think so often call us to think most about breath. For me, losing my ability to be, at the time I was teaching high school when we went into lockdown, so losing my ability to be in a room where I taught public speaking to high school students, where breath and the nervousness that one can detect in breath inside of the public speaking classroom for high school students was now an absent thing. I was also now no longer able to go to poetry readings or to theater events, both things that obviously ask us to pay enormous attention to breath, not just for the delivery of the poem or the line or acting in a scene, but also that kind of acknowledgement that to be in a space of poetry or in a space of play is also to ask the audience to breathe with us and the best poems and the best theater, I think affects breath right like I think there's a way there's a way that we've always known this and it's why we call things that are absolutely like beautiful and devastating we call them breathtaking right like there there is such a constant attention to the way that our lungs are these gauges for how we are alive and for how we do our living and so those things were now gone. And then finally, I think one thing that, that that hurt me quite a bit too is nightlife was gone. And I keep mm-hmm. thinking, obviously, you know, as somebody who's fat and who also really loves to dance, there is something about, about catching my own sort of like labored breathing in a dance club that always also felt like such a lovely reminder of my limits and also of my ability to push to like to push past limits. And so mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think breath was really on, on my mind a lot early on in in the lockdown because, and I think obviously there's a larger conversation here, but I, in a very personal way, I've always felt like my poet and my writing on the page isn't very good or isn't very rigorous or doesn't have the attention or craft or sort of like level of excellence that I think other poets do. And I think some of that comes from, I mean, I think some of that comes from like internalized like self-flagellation that I think just happens when you decide to create. But two, Mm -hmm. I also think some of that comes from having been somebody who started doing poetry as a spoken event, right? As something that feels fullest when I'm speaking the poem aloud. I think there are moments Mm -hmm. where I think about my own practice as something that really needs to live in my body for it to be effective. Like, so, sometimes I will look at a poem on the page and sort of realize it's, at least my work, right? Like, like when I'm speaking about my work, realize that to some degree it, it feels flat or I really look at the holes because I know that some of the writing is actually promised and scripted in my body and in how I will deliver the poem rather than what the text looks like on the page. And that feels terrifying like when covid when covid and our response to it did what it did to live performance spaces i kept thinking a lot about what it means to then have a body of work That would always feel incomplete, right? If we were never to return to these spaces again, or if the question of contagion and breath and the possibility of breath being the thing that might kill someone, which for me was kind of my biggest fear during the pandemic is getting other people sick, then what would that mean for folks who, who find the fullness of their practice only enacted in the sharing of breath? And so I think... That probably was, I think, one of the most sort of, yeah. I actually, you know, thank you for asking these questions because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh shit. I think so much of like my pausing and my sort of really considering, Mm -hmm. well, is the work that you're writing important? So much of it really had to do with do I really want to risk somebody else's health to speak a poem aloud in a room with somebody else? Do I? Is this play or is this story really worth like risking someone else's health, the actors, the cast, the crew, the audience? Is it work? Is it worth that risk? And yeah, I think feeling unable to answer those questions definitely felt really terrifying. So I yeah, I've been thinking about breath a lot as I've been as I've been heading back to doing live performance and to thinking about returning to theater. I've got a solo show that's running here in Los Angeles in October November. And one of the things that I'm going to do this summer is actually going to do some work with a vocal coach just to be more deliberate about about my lungs and thinking about what it means to to sustain the ability to speak for really prolonged periods of time more. Because I'm realizing that the pandemic also changed so much of my body and specifically like my capacity for breath and speaking that that pause really changed and reoriented so much of my relationship to breath. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about that. Yeah.
1: I like what you were saying about how our relationship to writing has become so much a symptom of, or has resulted in a symptom of how our relationship with the pandemic in our bodies has just like switched over. There is so much to say about how, the voice and the breath have, yeah, just mutated in this, in this case, in this mic. I really like how you put it. Also, so interesting that you want to put a mic on that and like really take a look at that. And it really goes to show how we are conduits in every sense of our voice, literally and poetically. I can't wait to hear what you create when, when you are like doing poetry in the next coming weeks and also in your play. Can you tell us more about your play? Yeah.
2: So the show is called Undocuments and it's an autobiographical solo show about, about documentation, about immigration. And I think more specifically about the way that legal structures of migration as determined by a white supremacist xenophobic state then get to sort of choreograph the very intimate moments that get lived out with our families and so the show charts my my sort of my family's history with immigration specifically focusing on my own arrival into the to the United States as as an undocumented person and my journey towards naturalization that occurred as my... I have two brothers who were deported, one in 2008 and one in 2009. And so the show really sort of braids the process of naturalization alongside all of the metrics by which the state deemed my brother somebody who was disposable to this country. I've been performing the show since 2018. And the show was born out of a collection of poems and small journal entries that then get cobbled together to to become uh, a performance that lasts around 60 minutes. So it will be getting its West Coast premiere here in Los Angeles with the Los Angeles Theatre Center through the Latino Theatre Company. And so I've been performing the show since 2018. I've done it at universities. I during the pandemic, did a production of it that was live-streamed through Teatro Audaz in San Antonio. And so this latest iteration will be its first sort of proper run in a theater since February of 2020. And so, yeah, the show was born in a lot of ways as a response to... And, you know, I'll say this, I think I became really deeply frustrated with how often we invoke the phrase after the election, after Donald Trump's election.
1: As if there was no election before
2: that. Right.
1: Exactly. <laughs> or even um, like politics in general.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I will say, I think, you know, and, I, and here I go. And here's my contribution to that, that of not. But, but yeah, I do think that there was a kind of, yeah, after the 26th election, I think I had this brief moment of realizing, Okay. So you live in a country that has inherently, because of its nature, it enabled one of the most violent auctions for immigration as a way to function through kind of like ethnic cleansing logics. Right. Like I, I think that there's a very specific way in which every piece of legislature that has contoured migration policy in the United States since its inception, you know, even beginning with like with slave codes has contributed to creating a very palpable grammar of violence for anybody that this country wants to deem non-human. And... The issue with that was that we had eight years of hope and change that also, in really stealthy ways, and in ways that weren't stealthy either, right? In, in quite loud ways, if you were listening, that that were going to enable like further violence, right? That, that even those eight years under the Obama administration were setting up all of the architecture that would lead to a lot of the very real violence that, that, that we saw manifest during the Trump years. And so I think there was a point not long prior to to Trump's winning that I think a lot of us were like, oh, he's going to win. Like, this is just what's going to happen. And so, and so we just need to be prepared to see the volatility of, of status and of documentation really be exploited in its most violent ways. And so... There was a point where I think I was like, well, I don't want the only thing I leave behind to be, you know, bills and <laughs> leases and loan applications and like past due notices. I don't want the only thing I leave behind to be documents that that have been, yeah, that, that dictate my life in such a way that. That mm-hmm. I don't get to be a person. And so I decided to sort of with the encouragement of, you know, a network of really lovely theater collaborators in, in Austin and Rudy Ramirez, who is the director of the piece, to make this performance piece that I think, for me anyway, feels like a much better way to attest to my living than anything a government could imagine. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I've been working, I've been working through the piece and with it for the last three, oh gosh. Since 2018, however many years that is, I will not do math. I think it's three, four, whatever. But yeah, I've found, I've actually found the piece to be quite, I won't use the word healing because I think that word gets thrown around a lot. But I do think that there is something about the act of remembering and recreating and reimagining or staging the things that have happened to us. That actually provides a really deep sense of clarity about, and I'll sort of borrow from Vicky Grice, like a really deep sense of clarity about like who our enemy is and how it is that we are prepared to fight them. Yeah, so I think like for me, the show feels most like that, which is, yeah, a, a continuing testament of my living and also the workshop where I gain the most clarity about. Who it is that is hurting the people i love most
1: i'm sorry to hear about your your brother's deportation that's yeah i also know how that feels one of my yeah. very closest cousins also was deported and just writing about that experience must have been really grueling but at the same time brave because you like put yourself out there uh, and yeah i'm wondering how, how was that process you know i I see that you've rewritten it and you've reimagined what it means to just like be yourself. And I think that's incredibly empowering. I'm also really curious about what was it like to be in the trenches of that?
2: Yeah. When you say trenches, if I can ask, do you mean like,
1: the day to day drafting? And, oh,
2: gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so process. Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. So the script, the script really kind of begins as a set of five poems that then became 20 poems that then I asked Melissa Vogt and Bonnie Colum, who run The Vortex in Austin, Texas. I was like, hey, would it be cool if I read this for some of my friends and theater homies? And they were like, yeah, sure, why not? So, yeah, it was, like a, it was a Saturday in September of 2017. And I decided to read these 20 poems aloud to folks. And I was like, oh, do you do all think there's a show here? And I think the consensus yeah. was like, sure, yeah, there is, why not? Rudy Ramirez then in March of 2018 was like, hey, no, really what if you wrote a show and what if the show was the kind of flagship for a Latinx performance festival in august of 2018 and i they asked me this question as i was heading into rehearsal and i like said yes and then just rushed into the theater and i was like yeah sure that sounds great not really thinking that it was going to be a thing that was going to happen and then and then i was on i was at an artists retreat in tulsa and rudy called and was like no really <laughs> you're going to write this show and we're going to do it in August. And I was like, oh, shit. Okay, I guess I should. Yeah, maybe let's do that. Uh, So I started writing the show, ended up I finished the show in the summer of 2018. So in July, I was in Portland. I was just finishing my very first like, ever poetry workshop with Dinesh Smith at Tin House. And I think there was something that was really wild and freeing about being in a room with a really beautifully curated cohort of poets, including like Antonio Lopez and Cesar and a bunch of other just really brilliant folks that, that felt really like nourishing and that I think actually allowed the script to be born. And so, yeah, I finished the draft in July, July 27th. We opened the show in August, like August 8th. So I returned to Austin. We start hitting rehearsals pretty fast. And I think one thing that obviously I think, you know, helped a lot was... And this is why I think I constantly think about like body and breath and I really insist on on, on what is possible and what can be found for writing inside of the corporeal and inside of, of actually like a really deep attunement to what muscle and breath and flesh and intonation tell us about uh, about how writing might work best. Is when we got into the rehearsal room... There were moments, for example, and I don't think I will ever forget this, but there were moments where I would like I'd be trying to work through like the memorization of certain sections and my tongue would just forget or trip up or cut line. And at a certain point, it would happen enough times in a section that Rudy was really sort of forward in saying like, no, hey, actually, like I think that that actually might be your body telling you that line doesn't belong in this show, right? Like that that, it, that maybe it does need to be cut or that it needs to be said differently. And I think just having the sort of permission, having the permission for the body to be unruly to the text was really lovely and freeing. And I think that particular approach to process really then spoke to like the ethic of what the show is attempting to do, which which is to say, what might the world look like if there is a greater attention and care and deep love and permission for the body and for breath and for our living and for our messiness that deprioritizes text on a page, that deprioritizes what governance and what structures and what bureaucracies might tell us a body or living actually is. And so I think that for me felt like, like a really sort of important part of the process. Beyond that, you know, beyond that, I also had some really, some of the best questions for the script and for its development came from another poet named Ebony Stewart, who is like one of the best poets that I think is working right now and that is doing, and that is doing really, really important work of aliveness in her work as somebody who's also coming from a spoken word and a slam background and who is also a solo performer herself and a playwright. But Ebony sent really... Just really nourishing questions to the script and questions that she then gave me permission to be like, hey, I want you to think about this question. And it's not that I want you to answer it or clarify it in the script if you don't want to. But how might you respond to this question in a way that makes the story feel a little more full and still pays credence And attention and honors the people you're trying to love inside the script. And I think that was really important and felt really good. I think it fed that process a lot. And I think the last piece that I'll just, yeah, I'm really, I love that you use the word trenches because I do think there's something really interesting about about how we might think about process as battle or process as, you know, skirmish, war, whatever it is that we want to talk about. Because what we're doing is not necessarily fighting with ourselves, but actually rehearsing. Well, I won't say this always, but I will say in our artistic practice, right, what we might find is the space. To rehearse the ways we want to fight the state and you know that fight can look like a lot of things and i think i think for some of us that fight might be like well great how do i create work that that insists on my being alive despite what the state desires and so i think having to do the memory work of recalling deportation hearings and recalling the sort of like specific uh, at a, even like at a sonic level, right, like what it means to chart the way that that your family's voice changes after someone's deportation. Right. That, that there is a specific mm. way in which like intonation and breath and like the brightness of one's voice actually begins to sort of leave or change or be warped because... This person who, who inspires to enact love is, has been taken from you. I think there was something about doing that memory work and that recall work that helped me also to structure and to make sense of all of the things that my parents and my family actually did to not let that time in our lives kill us. I think often we, and you know, and I'll say this, I think in the last couple of years, I would say maybe in the last 10 years, there's been such an insistence on joy and the work of joy and what that might mean. And I appreciate that. And I think that's really important as an ethic that can and maybe, I don't even say ethic, as a practice, right? The tendance to joy might be a practice that, yes, is life-affirming and is deeply important. And I think it actually sits beside and lives, obviously, right? I think anyway, like deeply tied and braided to grief. That I think grief and hopelessness are actually like the laboratories where we make the best kinds of joy and where we make the kind of joy that makes life possible because it doesn't deny or or decline pain, right? It doesn't refuse hurt. It works with it to make something else, to make what is otherwise impossible. And so I think for me, there was something really important about returning to those moments and actually paying close attention to all of the things that my family and myself, all of the things that we did to make are living and are loving of each other possible after deportation.
1: I'm just sitting here with everything that you've said. and You know, like writing and poetry for me specifically are such a healing modality and just a conduit for really understanding all of the all of my organs and how they're working and the more that I talk to you and talk to other poets I'm just in fascination of how science is really backwards like how as artists we know our bodies a lot more than how science is defining healthiness I feel like We are really in tune and we are really trying to navigate and finding a science, a specific way to really teach ourselves how to perform when we're leaving our safe spaces. Right. And yeah, I'm really thankful that I get to have this conversation with you and you really get to just like share your process, share about your work as a poet, as a playwright and how hopefully like when others listen to this they can see the value in their own voice too as marginalized folks as poets as people that really want themselves to insist their aliveness as well so yeah very thankful for that Yeah,
2: thank you so much yeah no these thank you for like these questions and for the conversation and obviously for your own work too i think there's something really Yeah, I think there's something really lovely about how intentional this project feels and how, yeah, just how much care you've put into like not only curating, but I think also making the space as inviting as possible for all of the folks who've gotten to participate so
1: yeah so amazing i always feel like so touched when yeah you guys are just telling me all about your process because it is like a quite like intimate ralph route to go through on your own and to just share that out there i feel like it's like yeah like its own kind of thesis on what it's like to live in this specific time and so Yeah, when you're when you're going to create now for this, this play that's coming forward in in a couple of weeks, what do you hope? What do you hope to see? How do you hope for it to be different than the last times you were performing?
2: yeah yeah I don't I don't know I think in terms of of the work being different I one you know I'll I'll give the really annoying answer which is isn't it always different um but that's dumb (laughs) um and that's dumb and I think the thing I'm most hopeful for actually is I'm really excited and terrified to have Los Angeles audiences watch this play and I think the terror isn't out of an actual sort of like genuine fear or a kind of apprehension. Terror is the doorway through which I just do most things. I'm always just terrified that everything is just I'm always terrified that everything is period. But I think the piece feels in many ways so specific to Texas, and so specific to the Texas-Mexico border, and even more sort of hyper-specifically, it feels to me like such an El Paso piece. El Paso, Texas is where my parents first took us to, and it's where I did high school. So much of like my formative self really is crafted in El Paso. And so I keep thinking a lot about specificity and the way that... that it, that I think sometimes it feels difficult not to think about specificity as actually the block that will impede connection with others when in fact the opposite is actually true, which is Mm -hmm. that hyper-specificity in the poem, in the play, in performance actually invites a kind of really deep resonance in that I think there's like a, you know, to speak back to, to to what you were talking about, the way that that how we talk about our bodies is actually sometimes a, a bit too steadfast to the scientific and doesn't pay attention to like what I'll call the sort of <laughs> the the magics that are possible otherwise, which is that I think sometimes there's a way in which like being hyper-specific in the poem, in the line, in the performance allows this kind of vibration that enables a permission to revisit the specifics of one's life even when you're just someone sitting in the audience right that 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 hearing the specific love for a place you've never been to spoken by somebody who deeply loves that place actually invokes and provokes your own love for whatever place fed you or loved you best or loved you first and so i'm excited to i think feel those specific moments with LA audiences and to bring and make El Paso and make that border, that border place here while also doing the work of imagining borderlessness, right? That actually, that actually maybe doing that work is also the work of imagining an abolition because it it makes geographies something that can live inside the performance, which means that there are things that can be invoked regardless of what papers and maps might tell us. So I think I'm really excited to to be in in communion with folks here. I also think the thing I'm always excited about whenever I take the show anywhere new, and whenever I perform new iterations of it is I think I also find I, as one might imagine, I find myself also aging with the show. The way that I perform the show in 2018, I think, is definitely different than the way that I perform it in 2022. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, my, my bones have changed and I had a year and some change of just sitting or laying down being my primary ways of being in the world. And so I'm also really curious and excited to see, like, what my knees might think of this performance and my lungs right and the weight of my body as it moves in this new space i think feels cool and good and weird because i think i mean i think anyone who's done live performance understands how strange it is to have one's body perceived by people in a space and to be okay with that right to accept a kind of what in the moment feels like a kind of unending vulnerability with strangers which for me is exciting and cool and terrifying and one of the best things about being human. So yeah, I'm excited for that. And I think lastly, I'm also really excited to, there's something really lovely that has happened in every city I've performed this in, which is that during talkbacks and during, you know, the sort of like receptions and meet and greet opportunities after shows, I have these moments where folks will be like, oh shit, this reminded me so much of my experience. Or when I was listening to you, I kept thinking about stories my dad would tell me when he first crossed, or just different ways of people entering the performance that feel like these invitations to feel less alone. For me, that that is the most exciting thing. I say this often about 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 the world we live in and about, about what migration and migration policy does to us. And I think that is that immigration policy in the United States deeply depends on a kind of unspoken clause of constant silence that you have to constantly actually learn new ways to be quiet about where you are and how you got here and where you came from, even as you're constantly being asked to present that information. You're being asked to constantly present and tell that information to government agencies while also having those very agency and the structure of this country tell you, keep your mouth shut and tell nobody and be as alone as possible right this place makes you feel so deeply lonely and i think the performance for me is an opportunity to create a specific sense of be withness that that feels good that 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 feels like the opposite of that particular loneliness and its pitch so so yeah i'm excited to i'm excited to make friends (laughs)
1: well let me tell you i'll definitely be at your show and we'll be rooting for you and i'm really excited to see it in person Um, i have seen it on vimeo and it was amazing thank you so much for putting it out there and i can't wait to see it aside from you know performing process being a poet being a playwright who do you look up to
2: Who are the people (laughs) of it that you put on your altar? Yeah, I think, yeah, whenever I think about about folks that I really look up to and I'm inspired by constantly, Virginia Grice or Vicky Grice, who is a playwright and a performance artist and just like all around like chingona, just like a fucking badass, is definitely somebody who I constantly look up to. And I constantly think about her. And for folks who don't know, she wrote, she wrote and she co-wrote and performed in this play called The Panza Monologues, which was kind of the you know, her sort of like first like work that the people know her for. But she also has this really beautiful play called Blue and also wrote what is one of my favorite pieces, which anytime I teach playwriting, I teach this play slash manifesto, which is called Your Healing is Killing Me.
1: A good book. Oh, my yeah. God, I God, that. Yeah, I'm having such a guttural reaction right yeah. now because I feel like, yeah, that book saved my life in yep. undergrad. Yep. So yeah. Thank you, thank you for mentioning. Yeah, that. of
2: course. Yeah, yeah. Vicky funny enough in 2016 Vicky did a workshop in Austin. And (laughs) I happened to just be at the workshop because I love panza monologues. And like, at the time, I had no notions of myself as a solo performer. I was just like, I don't know. I just like doing theater stuff and we'll see what happens. And she was like, you're going to do solo performance one day and I'm going to be your mentor. And I was like, "Okay, work. I was like, I guess. And uh, funny enough, you know, like I ended up doing solo and she's somebody who I constantly am super proud to call a comrade and a comadre. So. So, yeah, Vicky Grice mm. for sure. Ariana Brown is also somebody whose work I return to Lee. And also just a really deeply lovely and I think important human doing poetry work right now. I just really, I yeah, I just have such a deep admiration and love for Ariana. Alan Pelaez Lopez, who is also just mm-hmm. tremendous. And the first poet I think I ever fell in love with. And I have no understanding of poetry if it doesn't for me begin with this person, which is Patricia Smith. I yeah, I think Patricia Smith is tremendous, and I just really love I love her work. I think those are definitely, if I had to invoke four, those would be <laughs> it. But there's such a wealth of really wonderful thinkers and performers. So many of them on on this series too that I think for me feels in talking about that kind of deep loneliness that we're made to feel. I think there are so many incredible cultural workers and artists and performers who are doing that work of making others feel less alone. That yeah, definitely feeling a lot of gratitude as, as I respond to this question because I'm now thinking about so many brilliant humans who are doing incredible work
1: yeah just the list of people that you included that go into putting work out there that allows us to see our body feel our body to listen to have memory of all that happens in the state to enact in you know just like as human I'm really happy to be just here and having a conversation about all of y'all's work which is amazing this
0: podcast is brought to you by the city of west hollywood's one city one pride lgbtq arts festival each year the city of west hollywood celebrates pride with its one city one pride lgbt arts festival which runs from harvey milk day may 22nd through the end of june pride month
1: yeah, I think that now I'd love if we can get into some reading. Oh, sure. That's possible. Yeah. OK, cool. All right. So I was reading Madera and I thought that it would be really cool to hear that out loud.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I'll start with Madera for than, sure.
1: Yeah. And
2: cool. if you have any others that you're like, oh, what about this one? Then I'm down. But but yeah,
0: <laughs> I've got it. I've got
2: OK. It here, so. Madera, 1993. On our first visit to Madera, my uncle, Oscar, slit a pig's throat to welcome my mother home, smiled his fool's gold glint, extending the cut down the pig's body with ease. I was his guest to the slaughter, to his ranch. Mijo, he said, and kindly offered the knife. I declined his invitation, but stayed, watched him gut our gift, the smell of the pig's body emptying anywhere it could. The ground, wearing its newly found guts, held steady the fire, the metal tub and boiling bath to make the kill much easier to cook. Later I watched my cousin, Oscarín, and his friends ride their bikes with fury, the carnage of freshly killed snakes tied to the bicycle's frame, dragging behind the peddling swarm. Míralos, salvajes, my mother said. Her comal and costura calloused hand accusing the boys outside of wildness. It's cruelty. Salvajes. This must be manhood then, I thought. This must be nature. I watched the pack of almost men ride hard circles. The poor snakes leaving trails of themselves behind. petals on a dusty aisle. I was a boy in a kitchen. And wanted to be nothing much older than that.
1: Doyom! <laughs> amazing. Very cool. This is so cool. I'm really excited that I have started this podcast because just being able to be front and center and listening to especially when you're performing it for a poetry nerd. This is amazing. So uh, would you mind reading Barnes and Noble 1999?
2: Oh, gosh, Uh, yeah, give me a second to pull that up. Okay. Barnes & Noble, 1999. I was a boy in a bookstore, a bathhouse, I'll joke when I'm older, but then I wasn't. I was in a gallery of things to be cracked open, all their spines and mine. I tell you I was a hungry pickpocket plucking what language I could from books and men who stood hard before me. This is what it means to be astonishing, to thieve speech and sense from the undeserving. I tell you, I was a boy and they were men. So all the words I know for this, I made into small razors, some tucked between my teeth, under my tongue. And when they said what a good mouth I had, I smiled the silver glint of sharp things in me, singing, I'll outlive you, I'll outlive all of you.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for reading that. Um, any other words, any last statements, Any anything that you would like to bring up at all? No,
2: actually I would love to read one last one, if that's okay. Um, yeah, for and sure. before yeah. I do, I really do want to say thank you for this. This has been such a lovely
1: conversation.
2: And one thing that I'm really grateful for, for this space and one thing that I think you're facilitating so beautifully with this series, I'm so grateful for as a work of doing, which I do think is artistic work, is engaging folks with their work and asking just such lovely, generous questions about practice and about how and why and what we make it, it just feels like such a gift. It's such a lovely way to feel accompanied, and t- to feel, again, less alone. So I just, yeah, I just want to say thank you. I think you're just, yeah, you're doing really generous work. So thank you.
1: Um, thank you. Really, I think that if it's helping anybody in the community to feel less alone, to feel like that hand that they never got. Or just like a voice that wasn't there when they needed reassurance, reaffirming. I hope that this podcast is able to help. I know for sure I listen to podcasts and read books and whatnot when I'm feeling like the world is where I'm the only one living in it. So, yeah, I'm happy that we're all in this community because, yeah, the Mm -hmm. undocumented community, even though it feels like all of us are scattered. When I read poetry, it feels like we're all in a room. So I, yeah,
2: yeah, I would love to just share one last yeah um, one last poem. And it's it's still a little big poem. I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of it. But it feels like a, one of the things that I've kept with me most from my time as a high school teacher. And it was, you know, I'll sort of set up the poem and then read it, which is that I wrote this because I was teaching a social and emotional learning class for students who were recent arrivals in the US. So any, anyone who was three years or less in the country and we were talking about the election obviously you know this was not long after the election of Donald Trump and and we were discussing you know like what it is that happens in politics when there are transitions of power because I think all of us in that room had connections to countries that have been destabilized through through political machination and so we're having this discussion and we had a student who'd recently joined the class from Nicaragua and so this poem is about him and that moment.
1: Okay.
2: Brian. 17, latest addition to my ninth grade roster. Here, our pithy goal of learning a language, our home countries make us learn anyway, knowing we'll leave home. Brian, who writes ballads to his mother and seems interested in nothing but making the curves weaving through college-ruled lines look like piping on a cake speaks a different Spanish than most of us here do. And the other students younger by two, three years ask, ask, y tú, ¿de dónde? Common question. And you, where are you from? The Nicaragua, Brian says. Oh, they respond. None of them from there. Honduras, Mexico, El Salvador. present. Yesterday, a man was made president, perilous election, and legal jumbles to follow and us in this classroom. And I, once from Mexico, want to hold space, never having been told what that impossible phrase means. Talk to my students, try to teach, talk us through worries and the chatter of papers, whatever they mean. And just before the bell rings, at the end of my mouth moving, my nervous eyes, Brian, 17, just arrived from Nicaragua, says, Bueno, ahora les toca a ustedes. Well, it is your turn now. Just outside the classroom window, American children twirl pigskin. A boy slams to the ground. His friends watch, roar,
1: and then it's lunch. Our turn. Thank you for sharing, man. That. That's a new, that's a new poem.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's newer. It's I've been sort of thinking and sitting with it for a minute, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think back to that moment so so much because I think. As political actors, I think we often dismiss young people, despite the fact that like we also know and are constantly reminded that like, young people have actually much more capacious political imagination than most of us who got older do. And so yeah. I one thing that I think was always really inspiring and also sad was just realizing how keyed in young people. Especially young people who've been displaced from their home countries, how keyed in they are to the patterns that emerge that are the sort of telltale signs of fascism and of the very specific brands of neoliberal, of neoliberally enabled fascisms that I think we're watching manifest all over. I think there's a way in which young people just get it. They just they see it and they get it. And so. I still feel so shaken and touched by that moment where he was like, Oh, well, ahora les a ustedes. It was, really, was a wild thing to hear. And also I was like, yep, I get it. I get what he's saying.
1: So, so wise. As a like child therapist for my daytime job, sometimes when I was starting, because I, I just started in this position a couple of months ago, initially I was so doubtful that to be a child therapist because... I think in academia, we make so much noise about how, you know, us as adults are the only ones producing work or mm-hmm. intelligence. Right. But to just watch a child fumble through homework says so much about our day and age. And, you know, seven, eight-year-olds, they're often the loneliest because no one talks to them about this stuff. No one believes them. And I am getting to, as I am Growing in my work now, I am realizing, oh my gosh, why weren't we listening? Why aren't we listening? It's Mm -hmm. like such a constant universal stubbornness that I'm realizing that we're coming up against is, yeah, how do we grow as adult people and keep our softness and keep our voices and continue to put our original selves out there like children, because there's so much wisdom in just not knowing and navigating that
2: yep yeah, yeah yeah absolutely
1: yeah yeah thank you for that poem Thanks. as i heard in one podcast but <laughs> so like how <laughs> the it's I, I don't know if you listen to this podcast but we're having gay sex the podcast i thought they did a good job by using <laughs> butt plugs as like a way to plug in social media. So if you want to talk about butt plugs, that'd be great. For
0: sure.
2: <laughs> I have so much to say about butt plugs. And I can be found on Twitter. I'm susia J-E-S-U-C-I-A. On Instagram, I'm at the Jesusia, that's at T-H-E-J-E-S-U-C-I-A. So it's just to play on Jesus because that's how I live my life. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find where social media is concerned. You just kind of Google fully use like my whole government on socials. And yeah, I'm super happy to receive DMs and all manner of communications. Yeah, I am somebody who is also forever procrastinating, so I don't have an official website, but can definitely be found on social media in all sorts of ways. And then, what other things are there to plug? Yeah, and general invitation for folks to come out and check out on documents at the Los Angeles Theater Center through the Latino Theater Company, October 12th through November 20th. So hopefully we'll see folks in the fall.
1: Yes, I'm definitely going to be there. Definitely going to be- be there in the fall so i y'all come through support show up for fam here
0: thank you for listening to influx collective the podcast walking amongst the rubble queer pride to get updates on our upcoming episodes you can follow us on instagram facebook or join our email list at influxcollective.org